Let's read it. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to 37. And from there, he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf, had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. <laughs> <laughs> And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, all right, this one was tough, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. <laughs> and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Oh, Father, so much here that will feed and encourage and even challenge our hearts in our lives. And so as we reflect on the life of Jesus and his encounter um, with these two individuals, help us to see what we need to see and help us to hear you speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, my wife and I arrived in America in 2010, most of you know that, and coming from the UK, London, England, that is, to America, was quite a transition, and most of what was difficult about it was just some of the differences, okay, between America and England, all right? Lots of differences. We have a similar language, but there are a lot of differences, right? Mainly, for an example, um, we pronounce, you know, Tomato, tomatoes, all right? We do that, right? We um, pronounce um, aluminium, right? Which is aluminium, right? How do you guys pronounce it? Help me here. Alu oh, what? For, for real? You know, so many differences. Instead of, being, instead of trash, we say bin, 
right? Instead of I'm going to call ya, right? We say I'm going to ring you, okay? So many differences. One of the other differences that was hard for me to transition into is driving on the wrong side of the road, right? <laughs> oh, you guys are laughing, right? You drive on the road. It's crazy. And so in coming here, driving, having to drive on the right side of the road, no, it's the wrong side of the road, but it's the right side of the road, okay? Whatever, right? Just the right side of the road. Um, that was quite a challenge for me. And I remember one day I'm driving down these back streets. Um, we lived in San Fernando Valley at the time. I was going to seminary and I'm driving and there's this back street and I'm driving and I don't even realize this, but I'm going over the speed limit, okay? And then a cop, right? Or a policeman, right? Comes um, behind me, flashes his lights, and of course I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happened? And so he stops me, I look out my window, and what I do, which is quite fun, and I'll tell you what I do, which is quite fun, but he says to me in a bit, I'll tell you in a bit, he literally says to me, he broke the speed limit, and I'm like, Oh, my God. So when anything like that happens and I'm in trouble, I turn on my English accent, right? I, like, really intensify it, you know? <laughs> and the reason is I want him to know that I'm a foreigner, right, and I don't get it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm just from England. And because I'm from England, I don't understand, you know? And I'm just waffling on, and he's looking at me, and he goes, okay, I'll let you off this time but I don't want you to break the speed limit again. I'm like, thank you, sir. Cheers. You know, <laughs> all of that, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and so I've had tons of those experiences. Another experience, we're going to the Midwest, same thing happens, turn on my English accent, guy lets me off, right? And I tell you those stories um, to communicate to you that there are times in our lives, right, that we get what we don't deserve. Okay, we get what we don't deserve. Someone extends mercy to us, whether it's the professor giving you more time to finish your assignment, right? Or whether it's the cop not giving you a ticket for speeding, like in my example, or whether it's your good friend choosing to forgive you, or whether it's the barista giving you a free replacement after you just spilled the drink you just bought, right? After, whether it's like Amazon, the other day this happened to me, like I bought an Amazon thing and I went over the period in which I could get a refund, and I was like, I don't need this anymore, and so I called them, and I was like, please, I am British, I don't understand, no, I didn't see that, I didn't use that one, I didn't use that one, but <laughs> no, I didn't use that one, I just said, oh, I'm sorry, I just didn't realize, and the woman was really kind in giving me a refund, even though I was outside of the period in which I could get a refund, in one way or the other. Okay? In one way or the other, we're all, we've all received something we don't deserve. We've all been recipients of mercy. And in these stories we're going to be reflecting on from the life of Jesus, we see him extend, give to people something they didn't deserve. And in doing so, what he displays for us is the overwhelming, unwavering mercy God continues to shower on us as his people.
Okay, verse 24. And from there he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, so Jesus has been in Galilee, which is a Jewish Israel territory, and now he goes to Tyre and Sidon. Okay, and there he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And so Jesus, last week, we talked about, not last week, the week after, we talked about how Jesus had a confrontation with the religious leaders about the whole idea of washing hands before you eat. And so Jesus leaves from there and goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so what is the region of Tyre and Sidon? The region of Tyre and Sidon is a Gentile, okay, Gentile territory. And what that means is that the people that live there are not are non-Jews. They're not Jews. And so for Jesus, who is a Jew, not just a Jew, but a Jewish rabbi, um, to go there was kind of controversial. It was really controversial for him to deliberately go into a region that was scorned by his people would have raised eyebrows. As soon as Jesus arrives, what he does is he avoids going into the public spaces, right? Normally, when Jesus goes into a new town and a new city, he goes to the synagogue or the marketplace in order to communicate and proclaim the gospel to people. But this time, Jesus wants to stay hidden. Jesus wants some privacy. And so he goes into this home because he wants to have some alone time with his disciples. He wants to escape the crowds. He wants to remain on the D-Lo. But like the celebrities of our day, Jesus' fame has made it impossible for him to get some time to himself. Look at verse 24 again. And what happens then is he enters the house. He's not able to be hidden, okay? Um, and Jesus doesn't even get a chance to unpack his bags and put up his feet and settle. And before he does anything, he is interrupted by a woman in desperate need. Verse 25, but... Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Verse 26. Now, the woman, listen to this, was a Gentile, right? A Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And so after learning where Jesus was located, okay, this woman boldly approached Jesus. Um, we don't know her name. She remains unnamed. But what we do know is that she's a Gentile. And that makes sense because Jesus is in a Gentile region. And so she's a Gentile. She's a non-Jew. Another thing we know about her is that she is a, um, a, what does it say? A Syrophoenician, right? Which means that she's from Phoenicia, which was a wealthy city at that time. And it wasn't just a wealthy city, right? Phoenicia was one of the most godless cities at the time, okay? Maybe it was the Las Vegas, right? Of the first century. I don't know. I've been to Las Vegas a few times last month, and everyone's giving me a hard time, right? Anthony's smiling, right? He's never been before, but maybe it could be that. But it was known and had a reputation of being one of the most godless cities. People there just had no regard, no interest for God at all, just no interest at all. So 
And we also know that this woman has a daughter. And unfortunately, sadly, this woman's daughter, right, it's not in a good place. In fact, the daughter is possessed by what, um, um, what it says there. It says she's possessed by an unclean spirit. And this is why she approached Jesus. She is desperate. She's tried everything to help her dear daughter recover, right? But nothing has worked. No amount of sacrifice to her pagan idols, no magician, no magic potions. She's tried absolutely everything. Nothing has worked, and she's out of resources. Out of resources, okay? One author said it this way. He said, with her life and home in satanic turmoil, she had likely performed whatever ceremony she thought would appease her false gods, but to no avail. Okay? She's reached the end of her road. She's tried everything, run out of resources, run out of networks. Nothing's working. And so, just when she was about to sink even deeper into hopelessness, she finds out that Jesus is in town. And based on what she's heard about Jesus, hope begins to rise in her heart. She's heard a lot about Jesus, okay? Jesus, she knows he's a Jewish rabbi who's unlike any other Jewish rabbi. She's heard about his ongoing conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. She's heard about his powerful teaching. And most importantly, rumor has it, that Jesus is a miracle worker, and most important to her, she's heard that Jesus can actually cast out demons. She has a problem she cannot fix, and now she's in close proximity and can possibly get access to someone who can provide a solution for her issue. So here is this woman. She is a Gentile who comes from one of the most pagan, godless, hated cities by Jews. But because she's desperate, she refuses to allow her differences to stop her from seeking help from Jesus Christ. She's so desperate. She doesn't care. I don't care about reputation or image. She's not concerned about social morals or religious restrictions. She doesn't care. She's desperate. And so what she does is she forces her way into the crowd. Okay? I can imagine. Just imagine this with me, right? Possibly forces her way through the crowd. All right? Doesn't even knock on the door. Right? Right, bulldozes her way in through the door, gets to, where, gets to where Jesus is, and falls on her knees before Jesus and begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. How does Jesus respond? It's going to get fun now. Verse 27, this is how Jesus responds. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I like how the NIV says it. It says this, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to toss, right? 
tossed the bread to the dogs. How does that sound to you guys? Some of us are laughing because that just sounds really rude, right? Basically, what it seems like on face value is that Jesus is calling her a dog, right? It's what is happening. But just when, Jesus is amazing. Like, just when we could predict, we think we can predict how Jesus is going to be and act, he always surprises us. And this seems like one of the areas. On the surface, Jesus' response seems harsh and sensitive and uncaring. And this makes a lot of sense, right? Because Jesus has just arrived in a new city. He's possibly tired from a long journey. They didn't have planes back then, right? They didn't have Uber. They didn't have all of these modern technological advanced transportations that we have, right? Jesus, it was a lot of miles from Galilee to where Jesus is at. So you can imagine Jesus is tired. He's exhausted. And he's just arrived in this home. And this woman suddenly bursts through the door and comes and interrupts his plans for rest with his disciples. And so it makes sense to a Assume that Jesus' response here to her request is harsh and insensitive and uncaring, but the opposite is true. Because what Jesus says to her is not an offensive remark, but it's actually a theological statement. Jesus is not being rude, he is just telling her. What is true? And this is why, because the term children here refers to the people of Israel, okay? And the term dogs refers to the Gentiles. The Jews were not into dogs the same way we are in San Diego or wherever we are, West Coast East. I, so... Anyway, don't want to talk about dogs now. Um, should I? I shouldn't. But I'm not like the biggest advocate or lover of dogs. I'm sorry to upset dog people. But like our city loves dogs. They do. We absolutely, everywhere you go in our city, just dogs everywhere. Dogs are loved, right? San Diego was voted number eight, right? On the most like, what was it? The top 10 dog friendliest cities. Portland was number one. That's why they're weird, all right? And all of it. Gosh, anyone from Portland, I just, we could edit this out. Um, <laughs> And so, like, we love dogs, but back then they weren't into dogs as much as we are. They viewed dogs as wild and annoying scavengers who roamed the streets, right, and, um, and dug through garbage for food. And so, according to Jewish culture, right, if you are called a dog, it's quite an insult. And because the Jews disliked Gentiles and viewed them as unclean and impure human beings, Jews would refer to Gentiles as dogs, but although, this is so interesting, although Jesus uses the same term, he uses it in a different way. He uses a less offensive version of the word, and it's the Greek word kunaria. Okay? It's the Greek word kunaria. 
right, which refers not to the street scavenging dogs, but it actually refers to the household domesticated dogs, only a small percentage of people had at the time. Okay, and so one author says that Jesus used a term for dogs that was far less harsh than most first century Jews would have applied to Gentiles. And what was true about those dogs, and it's similar to the dogs we have now. If you have a dog or knows anyone that has a dog, every time you get on the dinner table to eat, what do the dogs do? They start roaming around or they sit under okay, the table in order to, you know, you're smiling, Rady, right? right? Ian and Rady and Melissa and Rady. But that's what they do. They just come sit under the table ready to receive whatever drops down on the floor. And so this helps us understand that Jesus' words here are not an insult. They're not insensitive. Jesus is not using a racial slur or he's not um, using a sexist remark or anything. But Jesus uses these terms, listen carefully, as parables to make a theological point. And the truth Jesus is trying to convey convey to her and his hearers with this parabolic statement is that the long awaited Messiah will take the message of the kingdom first to the nation of Israel. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. And so what Jesus is really saying is this, hey, Israel needs to be fed first. And just as it doesn't make sense to take the food that belongs to children and give it to dogs, right? It doesn't make sense, right, for me to go to the Gentiles and take the gospel to them when the Israelites, who are God's special children, need to be fed first. And so how does this woman respond? Is she insulted? Is she like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go like on Yelp and like, you know, and like just, uh, you know, just give bad reviews. No, how does she respond? Her response is to be admired. Look at verse 28. She's, um, it says, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus' primary focus was on feeding the children of Israel, and because she was a Gentile, she was not included, but to his surprise, the woman understood the point he was trying to make. She understood it. She got it. She was theologically informed. She got the logic. It made sense to her, and because it made sense to her, she wasn't offended. And so rather than being offended, what she does next is she debates with Jesus in the most respectful way because she will not take no for an answer. She acknowledged her identity as a Gentile. She was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know you're, this is not personal, Jesus, but yeah, I'm a dog, all right, you know, I am. But guess what, Jesus, I will be a domesticated dog, and if there's there's any way I could receive from you now what I'm going to be receiving later, I'm here and I will take it. In other words, she's saying, okay, I absolutely understand. 
absolutely understand. I'm not from Israel. I do not worship the God that the Israelites worship. Therefore, I don't have a place at the table. I accept that, but the dogs under the table still get to enjoy the crumbs that fall off the table. This wise woman understands what Jesus is talking about. She understands the priority of Israel over the Gentiles, and that the time for the Gentiles to benefit from God has not yet come. But her desperation and faith keep her from taking no for an answer. She comes like a dog begging for a scrap and in doing this displays an incredible amount of humility and faith. Jesus is blown away by how she responds. And because of that, verse 29 and 30 says, look, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Matthew's version, right, who also, sh- um, who also tells the story in the gospel of Matthew, adds that Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. During his time on earth, Jesus met many people, right? He did, but here in a Gentile city, he comes across a woman he describes as having great faith because she understood that although she was an outsider she would receive the blessing of an insider no matter who you are no matter where you're from like this woman you will one day Find yourself in a situation outside of your control. You will come face to face with a situation you can't fix. And when you're out of resources and when you've tried everything in your power to fix it without any success, then you'll be driven to your knees before Jesus asking him for help. And the attitude in which you approach Jesus is of great importance. The attitude in which we approach God in prayer, in seeking his face for something, is as important as what we ask him for. What do you really, really want? What is the one thing you really want that you cannot attain through your own abilities and resources. What has been your attitude when you ask God for something you really, really want? Has it been an entitled attitude? Or like this woman... Has it been with an attitude of humility and faith?
an entitled attitude will say, Lord, give me what I really, really want because I deserve it. But a humble and faith-driven heart will say, Lord, give me what I really, really want, not because I deserve it, but because of your goodness, because you are good. And this is the attitude this woman possessed. She was an idol-worshipping Gentile who knew she wasn't even allowed to be in close proximity um, to a Jew, let alone someone of Jesus' reputation. She was also keenly aware that her ethnicity excluded her Right from receiving anything from Jesus, she knew she was undeserving. She had no rights whatsoever, but she still pursued Jesus in faith, hoping he'll be merciful towards her. And she does so with a humble faith that said, Jesus, please do this one thing for me, not because I deserve it, but because you are good. You are good. There are things in my life, the life of my family, that we really, really want. Okay? We, we, so many things. Okay? And it's so helpful for me to reflect on this story and be challenged by this woman's attitude. She had a humble faith. She didn't, she, didn't, she, she didn't approach God as if he was obligated to give her what she wants. She knew that as a Gentile, she was not deserving. And so just like that woman, we don't deserve anything from God, right? Scripture that says every good and perfect thing comes from God. We don't deserve anything. We are either religious hypocrites or rebellious hedonists, right? Um, our hearts are prone to wander from God. Our choices are sinful. Our actions are driven by self-centered motives. Like recently, I've just been like so aware of how my motives are just, just dysfunctional in why I do things and why I say things. And I've just been more aware, aware of my heart and so many issues in my heart. And, and, and just like um, the person who has been found guilty of a criminal offense, we're guilty before a righteous God. We really are. We don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve his mercy, but God is merciful to us. God gives us good things, not because we deserve it not because we're awesome but God gives us good things because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf it's all about Jesus that is why we make much of Jesus that is why we do all we can to exalt Jesus because without Jesus we're nothing it's all about Jesus he's the only reason we can even approach God God, the creator. 
And because of Jesus, we approach God not just as our holy, great creator, but as our father. And so the question is, what do you want from God? What do you need from God? And as you approach God for these things, is it with a heart of humility or an attitude of entitlement? Like the woman, we don't come based on our good works, but God's work of grace through Jesus. D.L. Moody, famed Chicago preacher, um, said this. He said, Jesus sends away no one empty except those who are full of themselves. Ouch. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And so Jesus leaves where he was at and goes to the region of Decapolis. If you guys have been in Mark with us, this is not the first time Jesus is at the Decapolis. Several chapters ago, he was there, and at that time, he cast out a demon from this guy that had thousands of demons, okay? Jesus, like, absolutely caused a stir um, in the Decapolis. And so he's back, and because he's back, um, people know about him, and so he's bombarded by a lot of people. And in particular, um, he is approached by a man who was deaf and dumb. Look at verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And so this guy has great friends, and they hear about Jesus. They hear he can heal, and so they carry him, or they walk with him to Jesus. And we know that this guy was deaf, and he had a speech impediment. He could speak, but his speech was unclear. Okay? And so what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when they brought, these friends brought this handicapped man to him? What did he do? And the next thing Jesus does, right, will make us all uncomfortable, right? Who's ready to be uncomfortable, right? Are you germaphobes, right? If you're a germaphobe, you're a hygienic guy, girl, like in our city, you're going to be freaking out. My wife is freaking out. She's a germaphobe. And to her credit, the reason why she became a germaphobe is she got really, really sick just before we got married for sharing a drink. And so to this day, she doesn't even share a cup with me. She doesn't even share a drink with me. And so she's a germaphobe. And so for all the germaphobe in here, get ready. Put your seatbelts on. You're going to be uncomfortable like a roller coaster. Verse 33. Here we go verse 33 and taking him aside from the crowd privately he put his fingers in his ears all right so this jesus takes this guy away from the crowd and the first thing he does is he puts his fingers in his ear and you can imagine right jesus is face to face with this guy really close puts his fingers in the ear all right and the next thing he does is after spitting touch this tongue okay jesus puts his fingers in the ear and jesus right like, there's so many views as to like what exactly happened. Did he spit on the ground and then touch his tongue? But actually, I believe that Jesus spat on his hand, right, and took his saliva, his spittle, right, and touched the guy's tongue, right? And so Paul Tripp says something fascinating. He says, literally, the saliva of Christ mixed him with the saliva of this man. <laughs> Disgusting seems to us, right? Very unhygienic, right? But to the citizens of the ancient world, 
this wasn't as controversial. And this is why. In the ancient world, there was a belief that the saliva of a revered person has healing powers. And those who possessed healing powers would often use spittle as a medium to communicate their power to the people to whom they ministered. And so Jesus, what he's doing here is fascinating. Jesus has healed so many people, and he's done it in so many different ways. And I love how he's using what is familiar and normal in that culture to heal this man. And I mean, we could go so many places in how Jesus comes down to our level in order to communicate to us. And this is what Jesus, he could have killed the guy by just speaking. But he actually goes through the whole unhygienic process of spit and saliva to heal the man. And he does so using what's normal in culture in order to communicate. And so Jesus touches the man's ears and tongue. What happens next? Verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, that is be open verse 35 and his ears were open his tongue was released and he spoke plainly amazing amazing miracle this guy who was deaf who couldn't suddenly suddenly is healed is healed um and um this command and um so that's what happens and it's amazing to think that moments ago, this guy couldn't hear or speak clearly. Um, and now he can speak, but not only speak, but he can speak plainly. He became articulate in what he says. And this is so interesting, guys. In a very real sense, this is what happens to every Christian when they are saved. I remember when I was saved at that moment. I was in my mom's apartment in London and it was late at night and I was on my knees in front of a TV because I just heard um, this evangelist guy preach the gospel and he looked at the camera pointing at me. Um, I'm like, oh my gosh, he knows me. He knows I'm watching, you know, and, and says, you know, believe in Jesus. He will give you hope. He will give you peace, all of that. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I remember it was late at night and the only light that was to be seen was the light from the TV shining on my face and I'm on my knees crying out to Jesus to have mercy on me and I'm on my knees crying out to Jesus to save me and that was an amazing experience. I'll never forget that. You guys probably remember when you were saved and at that moment when you were saved, okay, at that moment, what happened um, to you spiritually is what happened to this man physically, right? You were blind. You were deaf. You couldn't hear Jesus. You didn't have no interest in what Jesus had to say. And suddenly, suddenly, right? You became aware of God's grace. You began to hear the loving kindness of God speaking to you through his word. And so that, this story is just a reminder of what it's like for Jesus to save us and transform us from living for ourselves and start living for him. And so as soon as Jesus healed the man, verse 36 says that um, Jesus charged him. Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone, okay? And the more Jesus tells them to not tell anyone, what do they do? They keep telling people, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Wow. 
What they saw Jesus do blew their minds. It left them with their mouths wide open in amazement, and their amazement inspired them to declare this. He has done all things well. That sentence, that declaration should be for us as Christians one of the most comforting statements in all of scripture it's easy to read something like that and goes oh that's so awesome i'm gonna go on social media and put a nice background and font on it and just post it and share it but my argument is and my encouragement is when we come across Every word in scripture, every sentence in scripture, especially these ones, before we share it, we need to reflect on it in a way that goes deep, deep, deep into our hearts and affects our emotions and affects our actions. And this is one of these. Do you believe this truth about Jesus? Do you believe that he's not only done all things well, But you can trust that he will continue to do all things well in your life. When we look back at our past, it's evident that Jesus has never failed us. And it's hard to see this. It's really hard to see this. But the truth is, if we are honest and we look clearly and um, Enough, we will realize that Jesus has never failed us. And even when we were lost and rebellious and wanted nothing to do with him, his steadfast love and kindness led us to that moment of time when he would save us. And as we look to the future, because of Jesus' past faithfulness, we can trust that he'll continue to do all things well. We can trust that even when all hell breaks loose, even when we are going through the most challenging, difficult, gnarly season of our lives, if we are his and he is for us, absolutely, we can trust that Jesus will do all things well. We can trust that. And it's hard. It's challenging. But guess what? It's true. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We may not understand all the twists and turns of the road of life. We may struggle to understand why terrible events in life take place. We may wonder why Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Right now, some of you right here have unanswered questions like I do. I can't uh, tell you. I just can't tell you why life has gone like it has for you. But what I'm certain of is that when you leave this world and stand before your king, your savior, Jesus Christ in heaven, you will look back over the days of your life and you will say, He has done all things well. This is the hope we have. 
This is the hope we must cling to. We may not always agree with his process. We may not always understand what he's doing, but we must encourage one another to believe that Jesus does all things well. He does all things well. Let's pray. Jesus, you do all things well. You've done all things well. You have extended mercy upon mercy towards us. You have given us what we don't deserve. And you'll continue to give us what we don't deserve. You are good. And help us today to trust that you do all things well. You really do. In your name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to have a time of reflection.